you go in my office, you'd see I've got quite a few books. And one of my favorite books, and it's one of my favorite books because of the title, if I'm being honest. I, I read it like 20 years ago. I don't actually remember a whole lot of the actual book. But the title was great. And part of the reason I like the title so much is because it was a great conversation starter. I had it in hard copy, and 20 years ago when I'd be reading it, I'd be moving around, people would look at the title and they would just laugh. And the name of the title was Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. And people would look at that and they would just laugh. And, and especially if it was somebody who worked with people. So for example, I went to a doctor's appointment one time and the nurse was, and I had my book with me and the nurse looked at it and she just bust up laughing. She said, boy, isn't that the truth? The more you work with people, and I can say as someone who has worked pretty intimately with people as a pastor and doing counseling, you begin to see that a lot of the facade that we all put out of normalcy in our lives that we seem to try to portray so often to the public is just a mask hiding complete and utter mess and chaos in our lives. Some of it's quite comical. Some of it is quite heartbreaking and difficult. Everybody's normal until you get to know them. And then you, when you begin to get to know them, when we begin to pull behind the facade and we get to look behind the scenes, we get to see that, you know what? You guys are kind of weird. But as you begin to pull behind the facade to look at me, you begin to see, wow, Bo, you're actually a little strange yourself. You know that? And... Believe me, I do. You see, that's one of the things that is so unsettling. It's frustrating and it's almost kind of fun because it gives us something to rail about as we think about the weirdness and how complex and how broken people are in the world. It can help us feel good about ourselves. But what deep down keeps us up at night, some of the things that we often try to keep at a distance is the reality that we know inside I'm pretty weird, I'm pretty strange, I'm pretty complex, I'm pretty broken. I used to be in a previous ministry, I was in charge of the new members class and I'd always begin the new members class by by getting us to all tell our stories. And it was amazing because I would start my story and I have such a weird, strange, complex and broken story in my past and my background. I could, you know, I only had so much time to be able to tell it. So I could tell all kinds of different, you know, I could start and tell this part of my brokenness and, or tell this part of, you know, how chaotic my life was. And so I could have different kind of emphasis within there. And as I began to open up and begin to tell my story and kind of made a place that was safe for us to embrace how broken we are and how messed up our lives were moving forward, people in the new members class would begin to tell their story. And what was amazing is no matter which part of my brokenness, they would begin to tell stories of their own similar brokenness, their own similar complexities, their own similar hurts. By the end of the, the time of sharing, half of us were in tears throughout it. We were, had to acknowledge the brokenness, the complexity of our lives, the difficulty. And it didn't matter whether this is coming from a, a rich, affluent family 
or a family that was in constant financial hardship. It didn't matter the, the education and the pedigree, one or the other. There was something that was so common to all of us that was a unifying factor, and that was our brokenness within there. And this is not a problem for Christianity in any way, shape, or form. In fact, to truly be Christian is to acknowledge that we live in a world that is broken by sin. To acknowledge that we live in a place that is fractured, that is not the way it was supposed to be. That when God created it, he created it good. And as we brought in to this world our rebellion and sin, it broke it. And it also broke us. And so Christianity, as we begin to open up the narratives of Scripture and the stories of Scripture, we don't see a lot of nice, clean, tidy people who through their enlightenment discovered God. Instead, we see a broken, messed up people in constant rebellion to God and to His purposes. And if not by the gracious intervention of God, would be complete and utter disasters in and of themselves. And in fact, still were in many ways. And so we look at some of the the saints that we find in Scripture. We find people like Peter, who after confessing that he was willing to die for Jesus, actually denies him three times. We see James, uh, this great disciple who, in, in, in his being, after being with Jesus in this ministry uh, and hearing him talk about loving the neighbor and serving others, wants to call down fire and just consume people that didn't accept him. We see a hothead. We see Paul. We see John the Baptist who struggled with down in his prison. We see, as we look on in church history, we see really influential saints like Augustine or Jerome or Martin Luther or John Calvin or C.S. Lewis, each people who had incredible influence, insight and wisdom, but yet, if you read their biographies, you acknowledge there are people who are broken. There are people who, whose lives were anything but neat and tidy. You see people who had encountered a Savior and were redeemed and had their lives changed, no question. You see broken people. You see people in need of a very good Savior. And the good news is, isn't that it presents broken people, but in the midst of all these broken people, it presents a good and righteous King. A good and simple gospel. What it does is it gives us hope in the midst of our complex and messy lives that each and every one of us share together. Sure, each and every one of us, we're going to have a different story. We're going to have different layers of brokenness, and we're going to experience that brokenness in different and profound ways. But we each have the same hope, the same gospel that gives us hope in the midst of this complexity. And this is one of the things that we see so clearly in the life of David. Now, many of you, if you've encountered David or the stories of David in the Old Testament, you know, in your Sunday school with the felt, you know, the felt uh, board and where you put that up, they're a great teaching tool. I mean, 
How many of you guys remember the PowerPoint? You don't remember the PowerPoint, but you remember the felt, wrap, the, the felt board, right? Maybe we need to do that on Sundays. But oftentimes we, we've looked at some of the great triumphs of his faith where he stood before Goliath. We saw even last week this incredible act of faith as he had Saul right there and all he had to do was plunge his sword down in this man's life and he had this incredible declaration of faith that God, that he was, Saul was Lord's, uh, uh, the Lord's anointed king and he would wait that God would be sovereign. He would wait on the Lord in faith. It was an incredible act of faith. But when we look at the full picture and the full portrait of David, we see a man just like us who was broken, who experienced, yes, triumph as God's grace in his life gave him faith. As God was at work in him, foreshadowing who Christ would be and, and ultimately what God would do through Christ. Yes, but we also see a man who was broken, who was prone to doubt at times, prone to scheme at times. A man who, like you and me, was broken. And we see that brokenness. We celebrated his, the faith, and we were challenged by the faith to say, hey, Scripture doesn't present us with a way to find our kingdom, but it presents to us a king by whom we serve and bow our knee to and trust in his sovereignty. We saw that last week. This week, we see a God who's incredibly the gracious to us when we fail, when we are broken. And so we see, as we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verses uh, one through seven. Then David said in his heart, now shall I perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should escape into the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel. And I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and he went over and he and his 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. Now, wait a minute here. What's going on? This seems so opposite of what we saw last week, what we've seen in the last three chapters, actually, where twice we've seen that God has, has, um, has kept David from uh, harming Saul out of faith that God would protect him. That God was sovereign, that God was in control. And now he's saying, uh oh, I gotta get out of here. I gotta leave to the land of the Philistines. And so he goes on to say, and, and David lived with Achish at Gath, and he and his men, and every man in his household, and David with his two wives, uh, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel and Nabal's window. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought after him. And then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let it be, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? And so 
That day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the kings, excuse me, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And so what do we see here? What we see right off the bat is once again, just as he had when he was fleeing Saul um, right in his initial flight, and we highlighted that, we saw that here was a man who was now fleeing. He was afraid for his life. He was looking and trying to trust in swords and spears. Once again, he is falling into fear. And the key word I want you to see there is again. Again, we see this. Now, some people have tried to, uh, some commentators, and they're good commentators, they're way smarter than I am, have tried to say, they've tried to clean this up and try to say, well, David is acting in faith that he can go into the land of the Philistines and, and honor God there. But I say hogwash. No, that is not at all what's going on. What you see is a man who is doubting. What you see is a man who is afraid. When we look back in the, previously in the narrative, where did we see when David initially fled um, Saul, he had the opportunity to go and stay in Moab, right? And when he was in Moab, God told him quite explicitly, I want you in the land of Judah. God had told him he wanted him in the land of Judah. And he had been through all these trials, both with Nabal and with Saul twice, as he learned reliance upon God. And yet here in this place of fear, what you see is that uh, David is now afraid. And one of the things that you also don't see is the name of the Lord. You don't see Yahweh. You don't see God. You don't see any references to God. You don't see God, David looking and, or calling the priest Ahimelech again, to come and say, hey, let's ask of the Lord, what should we do? What you see is David saying, I'm afraid. I look at Saul, he is not giving up. I need to go away. Now, you may also recognize this name, Achish, right? We've seen him before. When David initially fled, remember, he went to the same city of Gath and he became so afraid that he acted like a madman. Now, you might say, well, if he fled there, why is he going back there? Well, keep in mind, he's in a very different position now. He's got 600 soldiers who have become a proven uh, fighting unit who is with him. He has a whole family. He has a lot of resources now. So he's not going to Gath in this place of a, a refugee, but in a place of a warlord of strength. You might say, well, why would he do this? This is actually kind of common when you would have kind of warlords in the ancient Near East who would be out of place with their sovereign, with their king, a lot of times they would go to the enemies of that king uh, and to seek to kind of become a mercenary unit. So David is very much operating within the mindset and the customs of the culture of that day in the ancient Near East. But what you cannot say is he is operating from a place of faith. He is not operating from a place of deep faith in God. Now, this takes us to what, what do we look at here? This is doubt that he's experiencing. Now, sometimes when we think we live in a culture that is saturated with skepticism, we live in a world that just promotes skepticism and cynicism and disenchantment and disbelief. 
There are few cultures in the, civilization, in, in, in the world's history of civilization that pro, promote unbelief quite the way our culture does. So this is something that we actually deal with. Now, certainly there are many who struggle, and maybe the doubt is with the big existential questions of, can I tr- truly trust in God? Can I truly believe that Jesus Christ was his uh, only begotten son who came and died on the cross and rose again from the dead? And some of us, you may be experiencing that kind of doubt. For, for many others, the doubt isn't that existential question. It's the question, can I trust God? Is he, is he actually going to be there for me in the midst of this hardship? Will he sustain me? Can I trust that he actually loves me? That this gospel, this good news, is something I can apply to my life? Can I trust in the strength of his love that is bigger than my sin? Because my sin seems, seems so big. This situation seems so hard. Can I truly trust in that? Can I trust that he'll be with me? Can I trust that he'll be with my family? with my kids, with my wife, can I trust? And he's hardly isolated. This is the type of doubt that that David seems to be going through. It's not necessarily existential doubt of, is God there? Have I really put my faith in the true living God? We don't see that, but there seems to be this doubt of, Will God continue to be faithful to me? Now, the frustrating thing that many of us, when we go through this, we can look back and we can point to places where God has done exactly that. And we wonder, why am I struggling so much? But yet, inside us, almost physically, it becomes so loud, like this screaming tornado siren that will not shut up. And we say, oh, man, what a... I, 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 I try to turn my heart, my, my mind to trusting God, but it seems so overwhelming. And David is hardly the only one in Scripture that we see who struggles in this way. We find within Scripture, certainly we find people who we would call heroes of faith. Abraham, after all, a hero of faith. The, the Scripture quite clearly says, and he believed God and it was counted to him as Righteousness. This was a man of faith, but yet, even after that, he struggles and goes to Egypt and, and, and tries to through his, keep his life safe through his scheming. He's worried about his life. He's worried somebody's going to kill him uh, to, to get uh, Sarah, his wife. And so he says, hey, just tell everybody you're my sister. Otherwise, they're going to kill me. This is not an act of faith. This is an act of self-preservation built on fear. But yet here he was a man of faith. Elijah. Elijah is another one. After this amazing standoff with the prophets of Baal. What happens to him? He goes into this deep depression and doubt and despair. John the Baptist. This man who... Jesus says is the greatest man who ever lived. Incredibly anointed by God. Prophet. And yet, in the midst of his prison, 
In the midst of his discouragement, he sends his disciples to Jesus and say, are, are you the one or do we look for another? He struggled. Peter, I've already mentioned Peter. We could go on even to Matthew 28, right? And so the disciples there in Matthew 28, they have seen the resurrected Jesus. And they're right there. He's in their presence, but it's so overwhelming. It so blows their mind and their worldview. It says there, and they worshiped him, but some doubted. Can this really be true? Uh, have I just lost my mind? What, what is going on here? What we see is the Bible doesn't shy away from understanding that we are broken people. And it does so because it never points us to broken people as being our hope. It never tells us to look inside and find something within you to be enough, to be good enough. Instead, he calls us to be people who look to Jesus, who find their hope in Jesus, who fix their trust on Jesus. I have a friend of mine, he's one of the most incredibly godly and gifted pastors I have ever met in my life. We went to seminary, seminary together, he's like a brother to me, closer than a brother. He is amazing. And when we were at seminary or even after seminary, people who went to DTS with us, whenever I'd mention his name, his name was Chad, he was like, people... Bells would go off with people because he was so successful with, uh, in his studies and his, his thesis was so good that there were people that were wanting to publish it. And he was incredibly gifted with the languages. Uh, amazingly, when uh, they would come to me and I'd be like, oh yeah, Chad's, Chad's my best friend. And we're, you know, we're, we're this. You know, I kind of was raised up in status a little bit, just you know, through association. When people would go to him and he'd say, oh yeah, Bo's my friend. They're like, who? Oh, that weird guy? That, really? This uh, some sort of project you're working on here? And not only that, was he gifted academically when going to do a PhD, but he's currently a, a, a care pastor. He's one of the most gifted care pastors I've ever met. He's, it's just not fair somebody to be that smart and that relationally gifted with people. I'm like, can you give me something, man? Come on. And so when we look at the sanctification of his life, he is here, and I'm like, here. But yet he is a person that has constantly struggled with his identity, with his calling. I look and I'm like, how can you question? You have giftings all over the place. He doesn't question God. He doesn't question the, the gospel. But in his struggles... He can question, man, am I just useless? Can God actually use me? Do I just need to go get a job at, at some other place and just give up on this ministry thing? And I look at that and I think, are you crazy? But yet, this is one of his struggles. And God has used him in incredible ways, in ways sometimes he can't see. He has used him, but he's also used this thorn in his flesh as a weakness to keep him tethered to the gospel, to keep him tethered to his need for grace, to keep him constantly looking back and saying, where is my identity? 
Where is my hope? It is not found in what I do, which he is so prone to do and is so successful in, but his identity to be found in nothing but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, he is prone to this and probably will be for quite some time, although God's grace is at work in him and transforming him and renewing him day by day. This is a place where he will ultimately so long to be in the presence of his Savior to have this insecurity completely removed from him. And so we don't become undone. We can acknowledge our struggles, our weakness, our frailty. But in acknowledging them, we don't celebrate them. That's something that sometimes our culture can do While we can acknowledge them, we don't have to be embarrassed by them, we also don't celebrate them quite the way our culture does. Instead, what we do is we fix our eyes upon the righteous one, not the broken one. We fix our eyes upon the righteous one, not the broken one. As Paul Miller said, if you're constantly looking for enough faith within yourself, guess what? You're never going to find enough. And so, but by God's grace, what we do is we turn our hearts, our minds, not upon ourselves, but constantly to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We look to him and say, God, I don't want to try to impress you with what I do, but I am asking that in your grace and in your mercy, you transform me. You change me. You give me the courage to act out upon the faith that you have given me, even though it may be a mustard seed. And sometimes one of the biggest acts of faith that you may be able to do in that day and in that moment is to just simply get out of bed. And say, God, this is the faith you have given me to get out of bed today. Your grace is sufficient. Your strength is made perfect in my weakness. One of the ways that we can do this, because we live in a world that often tries to take our eyes off of Christ, what we need to do is we need to check our daily habits to see what our eyes are fixed upon. Check your daily habits. We... we, We don't realize how much our rhythms and our habits are shaping us. How much they're fixing us into a world of cynicism and a world of unbelief. Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, he says this, Finally, brothers, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is just, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So in other words, turn your eyes to that which is good and beautiful and fix your eyes upon them. Look for them. See where God's grace is dancing upon uh, your situation. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he doesn't just say think about it, but practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, does that mean you're, that you have to earn God's peace? No. That is not what it's saying so whatsoever. God's peace is there. 
but comes through his identity. We are through the power of the Spirit being transformed to receive that which is already ours. David, in his doubt, he didn't just leave, but he also resorted to something that we've seen him do over and over again. It's been kind of almost an elephant in the room throughout this series that we've been introduced to David. And many of you guys, you've acknowledged this, you've seen this, you've said, man, David's kind of a liar. He's kind of a deceptive person. Saul even acknowledged, and, you, and so you see it, he's, he's a cunning person. And many of you have asked, what, what do we kind of do with this? 1 Samuel 27, verse 8, says this. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gezites and the Amalekites, uh, for these were the inhabitants of the land from old. As far as Shur into the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the, uh huh, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive and would bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, David has done. Such was his custom, and all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Okay, so David's got him confused. He's got him wrapped. He's thinking, hey, you know what? Two birds, one stone. I can do uh, harm to the enemies of Israel. I can get all this plunder, this oxen. I can enrich myself. And I can fool Achish and make him think that I'm his, that, that I've really cut off all, um, uh, all ties to Israel, that they, they wouldn't want anything part of me. And you know what? I'm innocent of anything and everything because I'm, I'm doing all this to pagans. Well, his craftiness begins to come back to bite him to a degree in chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. So in other words, he's not going to be able to deceive anybody right now. He's saying, you're going to go with me to the army. Now, David gives a little bit of a cryptic answer here. And scholars are divided on what he's trying to say. Is he basically trying to give a cryptic answer to say, okay, I'm going to set you up and I'm going to turn on you? Or is he actually saying, hey, I'm going to be loyal to you? And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know that I, your servant, what you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Wow. Now, scholars are again in debate on what to do with this. 
What is clear is there is an apologetic for David in here. In the sense that it is clear that though he was living with the Philistines, he was in no way harming Israel. He was, he was fighting against the Lord's enemies. And in fact, the people that he was fighting against were the people who are listed in uh, the Canaanite conquest as people that Israel was supposed to have uh, uh, moved out of the land. So do we say, well, okay, as some have, David here is just being really cunning and crafting and, and he's actually being really faithful to God. What I would argue here and I'm very, very convinced of this as I read not only 1 Samuel, but 2 Samuel as well, because this really seems to come home and come to roost in 2 Samuel, is what you see is someone who has learned to trust in their schemes and their cleverness and their deceit. And yet, despite their reliance on trickery, God will use what the things that he has done for evil for his own purposes, for his ultimate good. But as he learns this to rely on this trickery, it's going to end up to become a downfall for him. You see, what we have to remember as we look at Old Testament historical narratives, really all narratives, it often teaches us, and it makes its point, not by explicit commentary. David did this, and he was an idiot for doing it. That's not the way it actually goes about. What it does is it tells you the story as you continue to read how there was folly behind it. So it doesn't specifically say, for example, Solomon did a great sin by marrying a whole bunch of wives and having a whole bunch of concubines, but it showed the error and the folly of him ignoring God's covenant commands that the king wasn't to do that by showing that these wives led him astray. We see that David has already begun throughout that whenever, especially you see him in places of fear, he goes to cunning, he goes to lies, he goes to deceits. Now, God is able to use this, and he may even be able to do this with a clear conscience, saying, well, I'm just doing all this stuff to, for, for God's purposes. But ultimately, he is learning a pattern of deception that will lead not only to his ruin, but to the ruin of his family. Because later on, what you see is he sins with Bathsheba, and he tries to cover up with his craftiness, with his deceit. Things and patterns he's learned to be able to handle situations when he, things get out of control. Not only that, but you see as um, God uh, brings about the consequences of this sin on, to bear upon his family, his family like Absalom uh, uh, and, and, and his other son who, who, who develops this, this weird incestuous love affair for his sister, they resort to these same sort of cunning and deceptions to get what they want, and the result is chaos. The result is horror and sin. You see, as we look at scriptures, once again, we see people who have tried to hide their doubt, have tried to hide their unbelief with their own cleverness, their own craftiness. And they can oftentimes 
resolve it because it seems to work for a little while. And in many times, God still uses that despite their intentions behind it, ultimately for his good, just as he does here. But there still begins within them this pattern of sinfulness that will ultimately come to roost. My wife, as she, we moved into Texas, began working for this man who... As we began working with him, one of the reasons we we're attracted to him is because he boasted all the time of how he was using his money, and he was a very wealthy man, to plant churches in Bulgaria, which, of course, Mariana being from Bulgaria, she was extremely interested in being with somebody who had a heart for her country to take the gospel there. And he would talk about his close relationship with the pastor of the church where he went and how he would do all these various things and how he was using all of his money for the kingdom. And so she began going to work for him, and what she found out is he was actually a remarkably unethical guy in the way he did his business. He lied through his teeth. And when confronted upon it, he would say, look, look at all the things I'm doing with my money. And so he justified his unethical business practices by the ends justifying the means. But yet, what you begin to see as you begin to pull back the layers of his life, he was using that same sort of manipulation, that same sort of tactics to manipulate his spouse as well. It became a pattern of who he was and what he was doing. We see throughout there have been many denominations, there have been many families, there have been many churches who have fallen into gross misconduct and horrific scandal because they tried to hide sin. They tried to use manipulation to try to get, thing, get themselves out of trouble. And it just ended up spiraling out of control and ended up creating a far greater mess in the end. Denominations that try to hide sexual misconduct of pastors. Hey, we can't highlight this because, you know, that'll make the denomination look bad. Whenever we try to use spin, it always ends up going wonky. But here's the thing. What we see throughout with David... It's easy for us now to look at him and say, man, he's a messed up dude. We can say, wow, yeah, everybody's normal until you get to know him. But the truth is, in the midst of showing us people who are just like us, who are complex, broken, and messed up, what it does is God gives us a simple grace for our complicated lives. God gives us a simple grace for our complicated lives. When we look back up at 1 Samuel 27, verse 6, it says, In that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah this day. Now it's easy for that to be a throwaway little line that we see. Yes, but Ziklag was one of the initial places that was listed in Joshua as being of, that was supposed to go to the territory of Simeon and Judah. And it was never actually taken. God still used the brokenness and the sin, I would argue, 
of David for his purposes. God was still in control, and that is good news for you and for me because what it reminds us, friends, is that even though we are broken, even though that none of us can look to ourselves for hope, we can trust in the simple reality of God's grace which meets us in our place of brokenness, in our place of need, in who we are, and though our sins compound, and yes, there are consequences to sin. But yet God offers us a grace that enables us to be redeemed and to be assured that we are loved by him. Now, his grace does not mean that his love will affirm our sin. The Bible is clear that sin is, in fact, sin, and it is uncompromising in that. But what we can know is despite our brokenness and our grace, that we can be redeemed that we can receive his love that is based on the magnitude of his love, not our worthiness of that love. It's a simple good news that in our broken, complex world, we have a God without sin, a God who did not come and wait for us to have some uh, uh, enlightened path, but looked at us and said, I am coming for you. I am bringing you, I'm coming to you in your state of brokenness and I'm going to make you mine. We see the story of Jesus encountering a woman caught in adultery. Jesus doesn't affirm, oh yeah, it's no big deal, adultery. But he's able to look at her and say, Has anybody condemned you? No. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He's able to encounter a man, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, who made himself rich by defrauding people. And he's able to look at him and love him and come and bring salvation into this Zacchaeus. That's good news for you and for me because... As we look at our simple, as our complicated lives, we often look at it and we can look at our past and say, I've messed up. My story is filled with brokenness. I'm on my second or maybe third marriage. And as I look back at at my first two marriages, I acknowledge that my sin brought so much brokenness. How can I believe that God can do anything but bring chaos and destruction to my third marriage? You may look at even at the relationship you're in. You may say, wow, man, we, we entered into this relationship in a broken, messed up place. Can God redeem it? You may look at your career path and maybe you've amassed yourself a great deal of success, but you've done it, if you're honest, through unethical means, through being a ruthless business person. Can God save and redeem me? Yes. Doesn't mean there won't be consequences. Doesn't mean you may not have to go to jail. But you can be assured of God's, not only his love, but his redemption. His ability to work in your heart and in your life. You may look at your life and you say, I've done all of this. I've all done all of that. 
I have no doubt that your life is more complex and complicated than I could possibly understand. I couldn't say, oh, I know how that goes. I know how to race. No, I don't. But I know the simple good news of Jesus Christ who came and said, I didn't come to, to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. There's a <clears throat> famous illustration. And it's told by Matt Chandler. There, back when the purity culture was all the rage, there, there used to be this illustration of a guy who would go around and he'd pass a rose. And, and as each rose would pass around, by the end of it passing around, the rose would be quite messed up, you know, as each person touched it. And he was trying to use it as a way to kind of talk about, you know, whenever we misuse our bodies sexually, that we, that we, we, we do harm to it. And I understand what he's saying, but the problem with that is he would come back to the end of it and say, well, who would want this, Rose? And Matt Chandler, to his credit, came out and said, Jesus, Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that, that, that thing that we ourselves may say is useless and has no purpose. God says, that is mine. And he came through Jesus Christ and died on the cross, rose again from the dead, the eternally begotten Son of God. Without sin, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He commended this love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is David messed up? Yeah. Just like you, just like me. And yet God used him. He chose him. He loved him. He forgave him. And that same offer of forgiveness is for you and it's for me, for all those who will trust not in ourselves, but in trust in the grace and the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. Won't you do that today? Thank mm-hmm. you.